Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I am Leon Gittler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 11 in our series for 2021, and today's date is Friday, April the 16th. First, I'll be talking to Dale Garvey, Managing Director of Firm Decisions, the largest independent global marketing contract compliance specialist, providing advertisers with transparency into their marketing and media agencies, incorporating creative, media, digital events, point of sale, or direct marketing BOTL agencies. And I'll be talking to AMP Capital Chief Economist Shane Oliver about how the market has performed in the first quarter. But now let's talk to Dale Garvey. Dale, tell us about transparency in contracts. Yeah, Leon, look, I think transparency has been a topic in the industry for, for a very long time. I think why it's, it's sort of more relevant now than it's ever been is because it hasn't fully been sorted out. So, you know, when we talk about transparency in contracts, what we're really referring to is full visibility over, you know, the supply chain when it's relative to advertising. So if you're an advertiser and you have media partners, transparency expectations of those media partners are that you know where the media or advertising you're purchasing is coming from, both in terms of financial cost disclosure, and then also, I suppose, whether it's, whether it's actually valid media and not potentially traffic. So yeah, uh, transparency is a buzzword in the industry that's widely used, but it can mean many things to, to, to many different people. 
I mean, there, there, there'd be a whole heap of uh, suppliers. I mean, you've got sales promotion, event management, design, PR, ad tech, media. You'd have a whole heap of different suppliers in there, wouldn't you? Yeah, that's right. Look, majority of, you know, within the advertising industry, media accounts for probably the most significant portion of all ad spend from advertisers. So traditionally, it's been been the primary focus for advertisers. What, nearing one trillion in spend spent on advertising, you know, annually, and media accounts for a significant portion of that. So historically, you know, advertising was relatively simple. Everyone was watching TV, reading newspapers, pretty pretty straightforward. You know, fast forward to today's world, and you know, obviously the the rise of mobile and digital. There's a lot more media providers, advertising players uh, through the supply chain, influencers, for example, social influencers. You know, that form of marketing didn't exist many years ago, um, but, you know, it's, it's on the rise now. So I suppose as, as the industry changes, you know, there's just more and more players just beyond media and transparency of all those players, how they manage advertiser budgets is, is critically important. So, you know, with our, in our own business, we specialize on... On, on auditing advertising agency contracts. And, you know, I'll tell you that, you know, there's a lot, lot of improvements to be made within those contracts. You know, periodically we're finding quite often unspent funds, the advertiser places with some of these agencies. There's a lack of reconciliation. So these agencies may charge on estimate. The actual delivery or the actual costs for that activity comes in a lot less and the balances may be retained on, on, on the agency side. So, yeah. So, and uh, so companies are still not, and agencies particularly aren't particularly across that transparency yet? Look, I think transparency is important for both ends, of, you know, for both, from both sides, both from the supply side in terms of the agencies and those media partners and the clients or advertisers they represent. You know, it's, it's a joint responsibility to to have a transparent environment through which they transact. So if I look back five years ago, you know, there was a, there was a study done um, by the ANA in the US, which is the US industry body, that delved into the media supply chain, the advertising supply chain, and found there were a lot of untransparent practices within, within, you know, within that environment. And that rebates were in the US, for example, that some advertisers didn't know about. So that sort of shocked the industry into everyone was suddenly scrambling for their advertising contracts to make sure they were up to date and relevant. And yeah, look, a lot's improved since then. But I suppose the big thing is as one door closes and then the knowledge gets brought up on, on the advertiser side and they're a lot more aware of what it is they're buying and, and, and how their partners are transacting, you know, as that improves, the industry moves on. More players come in, like I said earlier, digital is more prevalent. So in a way, the expectation on, on the uh, advertiser side, you know, they almost need to become specialists in each of these fields to really understand what their contracts need to look like and where the potential risks are. Because at the end of the day, you know, a contract is in the simplest form, a risk management tool. So if they're unaware of the risks, you know, underlying the partners they're dealing with, um, it becomes very difficult for them to to close those gaps or at least be up to speed. Yeah? It would be particularly difficult now with all the different marketing touch points and the third-party recommenders coming in. How do you manage that? 
Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, that that's a critical point. And I think it comes down, it, it, it absolutely comes down to, you know, the contract and a right to audit, right? So agencies may bring in many intermediary or as you call it, third party touch points. They themselves have, have large groups who they may engage with, sister companies to provide services or specialist services. So, you know, from an advertiser point of view, to manage that, step one is having visibility over that supply chain and, and having audit rights to go in and have full visibility over every dollar invested. And really that, that forms the basis of building transparency, building trust, because if you don't have that visibility, you know, the trust falls away. So within, within the industry, transparency and trust go, go pretty much hand in hand. But you'd need that uh, transparency not only right across, but it would have to be, people would have to willingly participate in that as well, wouldn't they? Yeah, absolutely. And look, I think, as I mentioned earlier, the world ad spend, you know, is, is forecast to be around a trillion dollars in the next few years. It's, it's pretty much touching on that. So clients or advertisers are demanding that level of transparency. So at the end of the day, the marketplace has to react. If, if, if they want to uh, compete for advertiser dollars and transparency is a key focus in building trust and confidence over where those dollars are spent, you know, naturally, you know, agencies will comply and will, you know, sign up to those terms. So, I mean, we're really seeing within the in, the industry groups, so ISBA in the UK, for example, or the AANA in Australia, which is the industry body, um, they've all come out in recent times with their own industry-recommended contract templates on the best interest, I suppose, of both advertiser and agency, which has become almost the standard now in terms of implementation. So a lot of those conversations around transparency and debating what transparency really means are starting to go away because there is now some kind of standard in terms of contracts that advertisers are are adopting. But needless to say, I mean, you know, both sides need to be vigilant because services evolve, the the marketplace is evolving, um, there's a lot more intermediaries and really having a contract in place and uh, dusting it off every five years is no longer sufficient. These, these contracts, you know, we always advise that at least once a year, they're refreshed one to two years, uh, but at bare minimum, you know, they're audited, they're tested at least, at least annually. So, you know, it's all good having a contract, but unless you test it, you never really know whether both parties are complying with the terms, whether there's any issues that need to be addressed and yeah, rooms for improvement really. And, uh, and no doubt it's going to become even more of an issue or more complex as the market keeps evolving and growing and changing. Absolutely. Absolutely, Leon. I mean, it's, it's an ongoing process. It's a, like I said earlier, it's a game of cats and mouse to some degree. As, as knowledge gaps closes, you know, the contracts you know, become, become more mutually beneficial or accepted. As, a, as there's new emerging technologies, new ways of trading, uh, that knowledge gap on the client side falls behind and sometimes the risks associated with that aren't covered in the contract. So, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you something that's, that's, that we're seeing, at least within our audits, that's quite interesting, is the role of, I suppose, media agencies is evolving. But what we're seeing is, historically, media agencies would uh, represent their clients to go out and, and you know, procure media or, or ad space in the best interest of the client to achieve their marketing objectives and to you know, target their consumers in a way that was most beneficial for them. Full transparency over the supply chain in terms of financial auditing to see 
the cost of that media and how they've put, been passed through to the client. But there's, there's been a bit of a new trend where agencies are now, I suppose, taking on the role of both advisor, so taking on their previous role of recommending where you know, advertising dollars are spent, but equally they're inserting themselves directly into that supply chain. A lot, a lot of agencies now are starting to actually sell media to clients, actually act as a vendor, but without transparency, without rights to audit. So again, although I said earlier, transparency in the industry you know, appears to be getting better and contracts are getting tighter, these new ways of trading sort of reset the relationship again and reset transparency because now there's no transparency on portions of the budget where the, the agencies may may be trading for their own benefit. And then it becomes question marks over neutrality over, you know, uh, media recommendations versus, you know, self-interest in what's being sold. So, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a very interesting one and definitely one that keeps us on our toes. And definitely one that will keep evolving and uh, keep you challenged. And, uh, Dale, thank you very much for your time. Absolutely. Thanks very much, Leon. And now let's talk to AMP Capital Chief Economist Shane Oliver. Okay, well, Shane, how has the market been performing in the first quarter? Well, the Australian market's been performing pretty well. It's been a bit of a lag compared to other markets uh, globally. And I think the big surprise has been the ongoing strength in the US share market. But I guess a lot of that can be traced back to the um, extra stimulus that's getting pumped into the US economy and the good progress the US is seeing in terms of vaccine dissemination. So that's seen our market lag the US. But interestingly, in the last day or so, we have seen the Aussie share market go to a, a new recovery high. Uh, which I think is a good sign. We will, we are seeing, I think, a continued good recovery in the Australian economy, even though the vaccine rollout has been somewhat disappointing. We are keeping coronavirus under control, and by and large, much of the Australian economy is sort of is getting back to normal. Obviously, the travel sector excluded, and CBD business services are still lagging. So overall, I think the Aussie market has lagged, but I, I do think it's still on track for outperformance this year as the recovery continues to come through, as commodity prices push higher, as bond yields rise, which is generally positive for banks, and as dividends are pushed even higher, uh, particularly coming from the banks, but also from the broader market, which of course has the effect of attracting more investors into the market. If you're only getting 0.5% on your bank deposit, uh, and you can get 5% franked up for, for franking credits or grossed up for franking credits on the share market, then it does make the share market look a lot more attractive. So all of those things, I think, suggest there's a reasonably good outlook for the Australian share market. Uh, were there any particular sectors that performed better in this, in this recovery? Look, the... the, the... The recovery has seen uh, a lot of winners. Obviously, the IT sector was the strongest through the initial recovery. Or Latterly, in the last six months or so, we've seen material stocks doing very well. We've also seen consumer uh, retailing stocks doing pretty well. It's a bit of a mixed bag there, but at aggregate level, it's been doing pretty well as uh, consumers uh, have diverted from some sectors, um, obviously, into conventional retailing in terms of household good demand, which has been very strong. I, I think as we go forward, the focus will increasingly be on those parts of the economy that will benefit from cyclical reopening, uh, particularly industrials will be a key beneficiary. I think the financials, which have been recovering well, will continue to recover well, particularly the banks. They will benefit from higher interest rates. 
will benefit from faster uh, credit growth. And by higher interest rates, I mean higher bond yields, not higher interest rates from the Reserve Bank. And I think the resources, material stocks probably continue to do well as commodity prices remain higher than expected going forward. So I think we're sort of transitioning or have been transitioning now for some months away from pandemic winners, which were the IT stocks, healthcare stocks to some degree, towards more cyclical parts of the share market. Uh, so how would you forecast this would continue in the second quarter? Uh, we see the market continuing to push higher. We're currently, so we recently just made a new um, high in terms of the period since the, uh, the pandemic. We're still lagging behind the levels we saw at the high point prior to the GFC, so that's still a bit of a disappointment. Of course, other markets have risen above those levels. So, I mean, right now, you know, we're, we're sort of pushing up towards the 7,000 mark on the Australian share market uh, as measured by the ASX 200. I think the All Lords has already pushed through that. Um, and I think as this year proceeds, we're going to find the market push higher again. By the end of the year, I reckon the ASX 200 will have reached 7,200. Now, of course, there's going to be elements of volatility along the way. Obviously, the backup in bond yields caused a bit of volatility a month or two ago, and that could uh, resurface again in the months ahead. Uh, as inflation numbers move higher. But I think that will probably be offset. The negative news in terms of high bond yields will be offset by ongoing good news in terms of profits. Uh, we've got the US earnings reporting season coming up. That's for the March quarter. The consensus is for earnings growth of around 23%. I wouldn't be at all surprised if it comes in closer to 35% or maybe even 40%. Uh, so very strong earnings growth in the, in the US. And I think you're going to see something similar in Australia. Uh, which will propel our market higher. Uh, and, in fact, we have been seeing ongoing upgrades to earnings expectations for the Australian share market. So they had, that's perhaps starting to support our market. It certainly had a bit of a push higher in the last few days, which is good news, um, given that it had been a relative laggard. Um, but I'm reasonably confident that it's going to end the year even higher than it currently is. And the next quarter, the, the, the quarter we're in, the June quarter, will be a reasonably solid one. Oh, it's interesting. The uh, last profit reporting season was, well, it was patchy, but there were some real standouts there too as well. There were some real standouts. I mean, some of the retailers uh, shot the lights out. The resources sector did spectacularly well. Obviously, there were some disappointments as well, but I guess that's to be expected. But the basic message seemed to be that earnings growth uh, was was occurring quite rapidly and consequently, you've seen most analysts or share analysts revise their forecast for earnings higher uh, in the last um, the last month or so. Um, if you look at the earnings expectations for 20, uh, 2021, uh, sorry, yeah, 2021, uh, they've been revised up quite significantly. And likewise, the earnings expectations for um, the next financial year have been revised up too. So the, the basic picture is a reasonably positive one. Uh, which I think augurs reasonably well. In fact, right now we're looking at earnings growth, for example, for fiscal 2021 of around 32%. No, actually it's around 37%, so pretty strong earnings growth. Now just bear in mind that uh, in mid-January uh, that was around 21%. So we've seen quite a sharp upwards revision in earnings for expectations for this financial year. Right, okay. And what, and what would be particularly driving that increase? I mean, because it's quite sudden. 
It is quite a big turnaround. I, I guess we've got to allow for the fact that earnings fell 25% in fiscal 2019-2020, and that was on the back of the pandemic lockdown at the time, uh, or through the first half of last year. Um, the, the big drivers of it, well, the basic driver is, is the recovery in the economy um, at a time when costs are still reasonably low. There has been some cost pressures in some areas, but by and large, they're still reasonably low. Um, so the sectors that are driving it are particularly the resources sector, mining in particular, profits there look like they're going to be up something close to 70% uh, this financial year for the miners. Uh, the banks have seen a massive turnaround last financial year. Their, their earnings fell 37% this, this financial year. They look like being up 48%. And, of course, within the rest of the market, the spread particularly is in media, uh, as advertising revenue is returning, earnings likely be up something like 33% there. Um, tech earnings still doing pretty well. They're probably going to be up more than 50%. But other sectors doing pretty well as well. Discretionary retail, which uh, was thought to be a relatively lag, earnings growth there should be around 15%. Uh, even healthcare up about 26%. And obviously uh, some may benefit from vaccine production there. So it's it's... We are, we are seeing pretty consistent strength across the market. The laggards, though, particularly might be uh, utility stocks and telcos. They're likely to be relative laggards in all of this. Perhaps um, they, they didn't come down as much through the, uh, the tech, uh, through the pandemic uh, problems, um, and so therefore they're not going to, they're going to lag the recovery. Why would the utilities and telcos lag? Utilities lag because, uh, well, basically, you know, at a downturn, the earnings of utilities hold up reasonably well. And so, therefore, in an upswing, they don't, they tend not to benefit as much. I think there's also some structural issues which may be impacting some of the utilities, particularly in terms of power generation, which may be resulting in lower earnings. But they tend to be, utilities tend to be less cyclical. So they, they, they you know, the use of power doesn't go down as much in a downturn and it doesn't come up as much in an upswing. People still turn the lights on at night, for example, and still use the water. That doesn't, doesn't tend to change as much, whereas it's the cyclical parts of the market that see the big swings. Obviously, the, the mining companies, resources companies, um, uh, retailing, discretionary retailers and so on that see the big swings, building materials. Um, and also the banks in recent times have become a lot more cyclical uh, and that partly reflects credit flows, and it partly also reflects um, the interest rate cycle that uh, banks in a downturn tend to to lose out as long-term interest rates fall, whereas in an upswing tend to do better as long-term interest rates rise um, at a time when short-term interest rates are still low. Right, okay, okay. So all up, uh, you see uh, very bright prospects for the market further on this year. Yeah, I think the outlook is still pretty bright. I, I should point out that it is often the case that the first 12 months after a bear market sees the strongest recovery. I mean, that's quite normal. It's, it's the reason why, for example, many uh, financial advisors will say, well, don't sell out at the bottom. You'll never get back in. By the time you get back in, you'll have missed the easy gains. But that's certainly consistent with history. Um, historically, for example, the Australian share market in the first 12 months of a bull market, that's after the bear market low, has seen a gain of 28%. Now, obviously, it varies um, and depends on the extent of the decline, but the average gain in the first 12 months is 28%. The average gain in the second 12 months is uh, is 7%. So you tend to see 
share market gains slow down quite sharply in the second 12 months. So if you just think about it, over the last um, the last 12 months, you know, our market's up more than 50%. You know, up, up until a couple of days ago, it was 53%. I think now up around 55, 56% from the low point in March of last year. So we've seen a very, very strong gain in our market. It's been even stronger in the US. So history would tell us that the next 12 months will be somewhat slower, um, but it also tells us that the market will continue to move higher. The reason it slows down a little bit is because we go from a situation where share markets are unambiguously cheap after a sharp fall and therefore have a lot of upside potential as investors come back into the market. And then you go into the second phase of a bull market, which is dependent on earnings picking up, and the pickup in earnings um, can come with a bit more uncertainty. Um, and, of course, that's the phase when the share market's no longer cheap. So right now, I think we've gone from an environment where our share market was very, very cheap back in the low point of March last year to now at a point where we're around fair value or slightly expensive, depending on what measure you look at. Obviously, I'm doing comparison here to interest rates and bond yields to, to determine whether it's expensive or cheap. But I reckon we're around fair value to slightly expensive. And then we're more dependent on earnings growth coming through. I think the numbers tell us those earnings growth, those earnings will come through. But to some degree, the market has already anticipated that. Um, but nevertheless, it's still a positive um, factor for the market. And I think as the recovery continues, as we continue to reopen, as the earnings growth remains strong, that will enable the market to rise. It's just that it's not going to be the, another 50% like we saw over the last 12 months. Well, that'll be fascinating to watch. And Shane Oliver, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure, Leon. All the best. So what's happening in the news? Well, the world should be preparing for COVID-22 and COVID-24 and a stop-start economy because coronavirus variants are popping up fast and vaccines cannot keep up, says the chief executive of Ansel. Maxness Nicolin, who runs a $5 billion surgical gloves and protective suits manufacturer, said it was planning for higher demand for its medical gloves and protective medical suits for several years because the pandemic would keep rolling on. The knock-on effects to economies and the way people go about their lives will be with us for an extended period, he said. The company has a workforce of 13,500 people across factories in countries such as Malaysia, Sri Lanka, Thailand, Vietnam, Portugal, Brazil and China. It is bringing on eight new production lines in the June half to keep up with the strong demand. It already added an extra five production lines in the six months ended December 31st. And businesses across the country have reported that the strongest operating conditions on record have started to lift labour and input costs, which the Reserve Bank has said is key to the timing of higher interest rates. The NAB Business Survey, watched closely by the RBA, showed all key measures including employment, forward orders, profitability and trading shot to new highs in March, even as major government financial support such as JobKeeper started winding down. The Business Conditions Index rose 8 points to 25 points, the highest level reached in the survey which began in 1996. The Employment Index skyrocketed from 9 points in February to 16 points in March. The growth in payrolls has also moved 1% higher than the pre-pandemic level after increasing 0.8% in the four weeks to March 27, a day before JobKeeper was cut. And the Westpac Melbourne Institute Index of Consumer Sentiment increased by 6.2% to 118.8% in April from 1118 in March, an 11-year high. And Deloitte Access Economics economist Chris Richardson has warned international travel for Australians is likely to remain restrictive until 2024. 
The Deloitte Access Economics partner in his quarterly business outlook said he expects international borders will reopen only gradually. For Australia, there will be some sort of quarantine remaining for incoming travellers for some time. He said international travel, both inbound and outbound, pretty weak in 2022, and it may not return to pre-pandemic levels until 2024. And the cost of the government's delay in rolling out the COVID-19 vaccine to the Australian population is likely to exceed $1.4 billion on even the most optimistic of scenarios, according to new modelling by the McKell Institute. If the Morrison government's initial COVID-19 vaccine roadmap plan would have reached the earliest possible measure of herd immunity, 65% vaccination rate, by August 2021. But delays have now blown this date out, increasing the chances of further lockouts and restrictions. According to the new report, counting the cost of Australia's delayed vaccine rollout, even if Australia picks up its vaccination rollout rate to that of the UK, currently the second best performer in the world, it would delay herd immunity by 116 days from the Morrison government's original projection. The report puts the conservative costs of locking down a capital city at $123 million per day, and depending what vaccination rate Australia can ramp up to, and bearing in mind this was put together before last week's timeline upset, cities are expected to face between three and 34 more days of lockdown, with costs of up to $4 billion per week. And bank branches have been closing across Australia at their fastest rate in two decades as the pandemic pushed more customers towards digital banking. Since COVID-19 struck in early 2020, there have been more than 290 permanent shutdowns completed or scheduled, according to bank figures and finance sector union data. Temporary COVID-related closures of some bank branches are continuing and hundreds of ATMs have disappeared in a real blow to communities, the union says. Since the start of last year, banks have informed the finance sector union of 298 branch closures, with Victoria and New South Wales the hardest hit, each recording 97 closures. The ANZ has closed or earmarked the closure of most branches, 131, followed by Westpac, 53, the NAB, 45 and the Commonwealth Bank, 32. The recent mass closure of branches have left some communities, such as Mortlake in Western Australia, with no bank. National Seniors Australia Chief Advocate Ian Henschke said more than 2.5 million Australians did not have the internet and banks had a social responsibility to provide branch services. He likened the closure of branches to a form of institutionalised elder abuse. A new Treasury analysis shows the economy grew by $7.5 billion in the December quarter alone due to people's holidaying at home and spending their money here rather than abroad, as the government said the vaccine setback should not damage its budget projections. The boost, equivalent to about 1.5% of GDP for the quarter, shows domestic spending more than offset the impact of the severe restrictions on international borders and the effect these had on international tourism and other dependent sectors. With the budget certain to contain projections more optimistic than those released in the December mid-year update, Deutsche Bank said the deficit, forecast in December to be $198 billion, could be erased in four years. And employers are still struggling to find staff despite an expected jump in in applications following the end of JobKeeper. Businesses say part of the blame lies with the closed international borders, which have left a gap where the foreign workers would step in. Australia's unemployment rate is better than expected and job ads have hit a 12-year high. Despite this, more than 370,000 businesses were subscribed to the wage subsidy before it ended on March 31st. One industry expert said it was not just hospitality and tourism, but employers were also struggling to find staff in IT, construction and engineering roles. And the supply of registered financial advisors is on track to be 50% lower than before the Hayne Royal Commission in 2018, while the cost of quality advice for regular consumers have skyrocketed, new data shows. 
The data from Research House Advisor Ratings confirms the dire state of Australia's financial advice industries two years after it was eviscerated by the Royal Commission. A total of 2,837 financial advisors exited the industry last year, according to analysis of ASIC data by Advisor Ratings, taking the number of individuals licensed to provide advice to a new low of 20,674 at December. The 12% annual decline in the advisor workforce has led Advisor Ratings to downgrade its forecast for coming years, outlined in its landmark annual industry report. The researcher now expects advisor numbers to conservatively drop to 16,986 by the end of 2021 and 13,000 by the end of 2023, well below its initial estimates of 15,000. That would represent a 53% decline on the peak of 2018 before the scathing Hain Royal Commission and commencement of the Morrison government's controversial advisor education reforms. And Seven West Media, a listed company of which the Stokes family is a majority shareholder, lent shareholder money to Mr Robert Smith. $1.87 million of Seven West Media funds was lent to Executive Ben Robert Smith to fight war crime allegations. A secret agreement signed by Kerry Stokes' son Ryan reveals the shareholder funds were lent to pay Mr Robert Smith private legal expenses, including for top barristers to contest the grave accusations the ex-soldier faced before Australia's military watchdog. Last June, the loan from the listed company was paid by the Stokes family private company, ACE, with Kerry and Ryan Stokes agreeing to continue funding the accused war criminal privately because of the unfairness of your treatment by the military, Inspector General. Under corporate law, the resources of a public company must only be used in the best interests of shareholders of the company as a whole. Mr Robert Smith is the Queensland manager of Seven West Media, but his fight against the Inspector General's inquiry into war crime allegations has little obvious connections to the business of his employer. And Uber Eats delivery riders in Sydney earn less than the casual minimum wage during peak meal times, a New South Wales upper house inquiry has heard. The Select Committee on Job Security has opened with the first of its public hearings into the gig economy, hearing from representatives of Uber, Uber Eats, Ola and Deliveroo. In its submission to the committee, Uber said its Uber Eats delivery riders earned $21.55 per hour in Sydney through the app over peak meal times. The amount earned by riders was raised by committee chair Tony Sheldon to Uber Eats general manager Matthew Denman. However, in its submission... Uber said more than 98% of drivers and delivery people earned at least the minimum wage after costs were measured over a fortnight and during the time a trip or delivery was accepted to when it was completed. And food delivery giant Menulog has broken with the gig economy industry and declared it and will be the first to give many of its couriers rights to a minimum wage and superannuation contributions by directly employing them. In a move that is a major shift away from the independent contractor model popular in the gig economy, the company's managing director, Morton Spelling, told the Senate inquiry on Monday the business would start a pilot employment program for couriers around Sydney's CBD. Industry leaders Uber and Deliveroo have come under pressure from labour and unions because the existing contractor model allows companies to pay less than industry minimum wages, though it permits workers to pick where they work. Mr Belling revealed to an inquiry examining job security in the gig economy that the contractor model has suited the local market, but it was now apparent there had to be improvements to the working conditions of couriers, even if it costs more. Mr Belling said he could not see any reason why other delivery companies could not follow Menulog's lead. Menulog will begin by increasing insurance cover and examining ways to create a pool that money riders can draw on for sick leave and holidays. It will also start a trial of employing riders directly in the Sydney CBD and open negotiations with the Transport Workers Union over industry pay rules. Menulog believes current rules mandating minimum shift times for employees could stifle the flexibility 
its couriers enjoy. And Coca-Cola Amatil has joined the global RE100 Renewable Energy Initiative, committing to use 100% renewable energy in six countries by 2030 as part of its net zero by 2040 pledge. The ASX-listed companies' operations in Indonesia, Fiji, Samoa and Papua New Guinea will all be powered by renewables by the end of the decade and by 2025 in Australia and New Zealand. The 9.75 billion drinks giant has already completed stage one of its West Sikarang solar project and plans to expand its solar program to several manufacturing facilities throughout Indonesia in Medan, Semarang and Surabaya. And Australia's corporate regulator has revealed that it is investigating how Greensill Capital, a company once valued at as high as $7 billion with hopes of listing on the ASX, collapsed into insolvency last month. In response to parliamentary questioning, the Australian Securities Investments Commission said it was seeking a full picture of how Greensill fell into administration and how it has reverberated across Australian businesses and investors. ASIC's response to questions from the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Corporations and Financial Services also revealed the regulator had been in contact with the European regulators and what action they're taking following the collapse of Greensill's UK arm and German-based bank. Greensill filed for insolvency last month after it failed to strike a deal to renew its policies with its insurers and Credit Suisse froze US $10 billion of investment funds, which Greensill relied on buying the debt securities it issued. The work ASIC is doing to understand how Greensill collapse comes on top of the regulator working in lockstep with APRA to gain a greater insight around the exposure of Australian insurers to Greensill. It is also looking at the financier Spruiking, a US $600 million, that's $787 million Aussie, pre-IPO capital raising last December, which was quickly abandoned. The unpicking of what went wrong at Greensill comes after it was revealed the financier's Lex Greensill told staff three weeks before the group's collapse that it had access to enormous amounts of liquidity and close to striking a new insurance policy thanks to our friends at Marsh and Chubb. And private equity giant Blackstone has offered to take on Crown Resort's regulatory headaches and accelerate its proposed takeover of the casino operator. Blackstone reckons it can have a binding $11.85 a share bid on the table by August, making an important change to regulatory conditions attached to its indicative offer. Blackstone wrote to Crown to say it was willing to take on the casino group's regulatory risks, so long as Blackstone can gain regulatory approvals to own 100% of Crown from three state-based gaming authorities, and provided Crown is not stripped of its licences in the meantime, it will proceed with its bid. In effect, Blackstone is saying that it doesn't matter what plays out in Victoria, Western Australia, where Royal Commissions are underway, or what findings are made against Crown in its present form. Its bid's regulatory condition is now about what's happening in its own camp, not Crown's. The underlying message is that Blackstone is confident it can pass probity with the regulators, given its track record as an asset manager globally. And Jack Dorsey's payments company Square will launch business loans in Australia this quarter as the speed of a COVID-19 recovery creates a magnet for new data-driven competitors to the major banks. Square, which supplies small white payment dongles for small businesses to accept card payments, has earmarked Australia as its first international expansion market for SME lending outside its native United States. Square, whose market capitalisation on the New York Stock Exchange is the same as Commonwealth Banks on the ASX, has been growing SME customers in Australia by 92% a year since launching payments acceptance hardware five years ago. It will now use the data generated by the terminals, which is fed into Square software, to assess SME risk and provide select customers with offers for working capital. Loans will be made for a fixed fee, not an annual interest rate. Many small businesses are not willing to provide security, such as a family home, and find application processes cumbersome. Square's loans will involve three clicks and no paperwork. And that's it for this week. 
And next week I'll be talking to Aaron Applebaum, a partner at Israeli startup Mizmar Ventures, which identifies the best companies and entrepreneurs in Israel and helps them exceed in the global marketplace. And I'll be talking to Indeed economist Callum Pickering about Australia's latest unemployment figures. In the meantime, you can catch me on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.